0: Hi, everybody. I am Jen Johnson, and you are listening to Thought by Thought Healing, where I talk about everything related to chronic pain and chronic symptoms. I come at this from a Christian perspective, and so if that's important to you, then you should definitely subscribe. And if you are listening on podcast platforms, I would love if you would leave me a review or share an episode, because this is how we get this hope, this good news out there. Um To help people to realize that they really can reverse their symptoms. When we understand the mind-body connection, we understand neuroplasticity and um, our autonomic nervous system and how our physiology responds to stress, repressed emotions, pressures of life. And um, when we work with our brains, we really can reverse those physiological changes that show up in so many ways, including in chronic pain. And so I interview experts in the field and talk to people who have also done the healing journey like I did, and, um, and also I just talk about my own healing journey. And so today I get the great honor of interviewing Dr. John Strex and his wife, Lisa Strex. And so I'm going to read a couple of their bios about who they are, and then we'll get into the interview So Dr. John Strax is an integrative physician who specializes in chronic health conditions that haven't been helped through conventional Western medicine. He is particularly interested in helping people make the mind-body connection, the connection between what is going on in their lives and what is going on in their bodies as a way to heal chronic pain. He left his hospital practice in 2017 to co-found what is now Cormendi Health with his wife, Lisa. Lisa. He works with clients all over the globe through individual sessions, classes, and discussion groups to help them find healings, help them find healing. You can learn more about Cormendi Health in the show notes. Lisa Strax co-founded Cormendi Health with Dr. Strax and manages marketing, finance, and human resources. In a previous career, she was an editor, which reinforced her strong interest in education and excellence, and she uses that experience to continually refine Cormendy's connection with all of our stakeholders. She is committed to creating a place where both client and staff are able to reach their full potential in life. In this interview, we are going to talk a little bit about what it is like to work with Dr. John Strax as a physician and some of the things that he looks for. How long to look for a diagnosis. And then um, Lisa talks a little bit about what is available at Cormandy Health. And then we get into talking about um, anger in relationships. We talk about parenting um, and a lot of um, little things in between. And so I think for those of you who are starting your healing journey and wondering how this all plays out, um, this is going to be a really helpful one for you. So I hope you enjoy it and um until next time. I'll see you later. Bye. All right. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for being here. I am, I'm very excited about this interview. So thank you, Dr. Strax, for being here. And Lisa Strax also, thanks for taking the time to just share your wealth of knowledge and experience with all of us who have healed and who are still on the healing journey. So thank you.
1: You're welcome. Glad to be here.
0: Um, this is only the second time I've had three people, so we'll see how the talking over each other goes. So, um, let's just start with uh, Dr. John Strax. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about who you are and um, Cormendi Health?
1: So I am a physician based in Chicago, but seeing people all over the country and really all over the world at this point. I, as people listening may have heard me talk on in other places, but I had my own health issues probably 25 years ago. Now they got worked out in this mind body way. And then I went to medical school after I felt better with the purpose of trying to do a lot of this work. And so when I got to medical school, I told everybody I could talk to about how stress and other non-physical factors cause physical symptoms and understanding that would make people better. And not a single person listened to me right away. And so I went through medical school and I tried to move towards being able to do this kind of work and medical school tried to like beat it out of me and tell me to become a cardiologist. And Mm -hmm. I resisted and ended up in, at the university of Michigan for four years in their integrative medicine department. And I met Dr. Howard Schubiner there who does a lot of this work. And we worked together while we were living in Michigan. And I just kept moving in this direction to try to be able to offer this kind of treatment to people. And then in 2009, we moved back home to Chicago. And I worked at Northwestern Hospital in downtown Chicago for eight years and and offered mind-body services there, but it wasn't a big bra. And so I was doing a lot of other type work. But in 2016, decided that I needed this was my calling and I needed to do more. And so we um, thought about it for probably a year and a half. And then in the fall of 2017, I opened at that point, what was just John Strax, M.D., my own clinic uh, run out of a colleague's office on the north side of Chicago. And, and immediately, the mind-body work, which was probably 2% of what I was doing in Northwestern, jumped to probably 20% of what I was doing in my own clinic. And then that built up to uh, probably a third of what I was doing when, when COVID hit. And then with COVID and the ability to reach people in other states, we started continuing to increase our mind-body services. We've now hired three psychologists and we have a physician's assistant who works with us. And um, about a year, year and a half ago, we are able to rebrand as cormendy Health to incorporate everybody who is working with us. And so we now, um, you know, we have thousands of patients who have gone through our practice and Lisa runs the practice. We have administrators as well, but our core mission is to be able to provide non-traditional mind-body services to anybody who wants to work with us. And so that's that's how I got here and that's what we're doing. And I'm super excited that I'm able to do it.
0: Yeah, it's, it is very exciting. I'm with you on that. Um, so for people who are listening, who are maybe they're in the throes of the medical world and they're just not a hundred percent sure if, if their symptoms are mind, body, TMS, neuroplastic, whatever you call it. Um, and, um, I guess I have two questions in this one is how, how long do you search? And this is a, a question that somebody sent me to specifically be asked. How long, how long do you search for a medical diagnosis before you use mind body approaches? Um, and, um, and what, and are you accepting clients or patients um, uh, currently for those people who are struggling and want just a professional opinion on it?
1: Yeah. So, so the second answer first, absolutely. Like I said, it's built into our mission that, that we have always tried to, expand big enough that anybody could access us if we want to. And so we are always happy to talk with people who are struggling and um, and provide our expertise. I do consultations. Uh, Michelle Graham, our physician's assistant, is also available for consultations. And actually Dr. Howard Schumanner is now working with us on, uh, on Tuesdays. And so he is available for consultations too, although his wait list is, is as you would imagine, a little bit long. And yes. I think the question of how long to search, you know, historically, this has been a little bit of a treatment of last resort, right? So a lot of people mm-hmm. have searched for years for answers before stumbling on this. And part of our mission is to shorten that time frame. And so I have people who you know have not felt well and after a couple of weeks somebody tips them off that maybe it's a non physical issue that's causing their their pain and symptoms and they seek this out and are able to to get better very quickly and so when i see somebody in my office or or online and and they want an evaluation about this there're two things that i'm trying to do so so number 1 is there a structural issue that we have to identify and treat or they're not going to get better. So the prototype of that would be, say, a broken arm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? If somebody comes in to see me with a broken bone, I don't want to say like, I don't know, I think just meditate for, for three days and everything will be fine. Okay. I want to get that treated in a medical way. So I'm trying to assess that. I'm also trying to make sure that there's nothing that would be dangerous to somebody if they, um, if we didn't address it. And so I don't want somebody to come in, say, with a tumor somewhere in their body. And for me to say like, no, 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 I think this is a mind-body issue. I want to do my best to to be able to try to discriminate that. Obviously, I'm human. Nobody's 100% at that. But that's part of my medical training is to try to figure out, is there something dangerous going on or Something not. And so, if so, for people who are listening to us talk, those are questions to ask. And so, once people have been, probably in my experience, to more than a couple of clinicians, the odds of finding either of those situations, either something physical that needs attention or something dangerous, goes down dramatically. And so more than two or three consultations before trying to understand these ideas usually will suffice for people. And I run into a lot of people who've seen 40 and 50 clinicians without answers. And so I think that people can move into this understanding fairly quickly. And and with all the information that's out there, hopefully even more quickly than they used to, because we don't want anybody to suffer an extra day, much less an extra month or year or longer
0: yeah I absolutely wish that I had gone that route faster in my own in my own journey it would have saved me years of of misery yeah,
1: exactly so,
0: um so if somebody schedules an appointment with you which it, once we're done with this I'd love to get a link that we can just put in the show notes that is is for scheduling sure. um but what what how how long is an initial appointment what should people expect um? with that process.
1: We're able to schedule an hour for initial appointments. And what I say is that most of the time, an hour is plenty of time. Occasionally I'll talk to somebody where five or six hours would be needed to get the whole story. And there's ways to work on that if we need more, more time than an hour, but 60 minutes is usually a good amount of time. I have a fairly extensive intake questionnaire that we send out to all our patients ahead of time. And, and so by the time I get on a zoom call or in my office here in Chicago with somebody, I have a fair amount of information already about what's going on with them. And oftentimes enough information for me to start to make an assessment about whether I think uh, mind body explanation is correct for them. And so I want to, I want to hear the story. I want to hear what's happened to people, what it's been like, what people have tried and not tried. I want to hear what they know about mind-body medicine in general. And two questions I frequently ask are for people to tell me what they know about the nature of pain and what they've learned. And then also what they know about the nature of pain as it um, as it has to do with themselves specifically and so how have they taken the information that they um, that they've learned and how they applied it to themselves and so usually the first half of the consultation so the first 30 minutes or so is me listening to the story trying to get a sense of what's going on with people what their medical history is anything that they've tried so far and for me to make a determination in that time either I think mind body medicine, makes sense as a way to move forward or I'd say probably five percent of the time people say things that make me think like mm, maybe there is a medical issue here that we need to investigate further and if that's the case we'll drop a plan to to do that but most of the time I feel like people are on the right track and so then I spend the second half of the appointment thinking through okay now that we're confident that you can, approach it this way what are some of the next steps that can be taken in order to move you forward and and what I almost always say to people and, and so I'll say now is that I just want to fix it I don't want anybody to suffer another day like I said and so I just want to fix it and I know that I can't that's not how it works I know I don't have the power to do that anyways and so then I think like all right if I can't fix it how can you fix it but even that, I think, is too broad of a question. And so what we normally come down to is that, say, if we take the next month, what are two or three or four concrete steps that people can take to move forward? And I think that's a nice time frame to focus on. And I think it gives people um, specific, achievable steps that they can take to start to or continue to feel better.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Action steps. That feels very doable when you look at a limited time and how many things I'm working at or on. Yeah. Okay. So I think that leads me to my second question, which, um, which is once somebody has an appointment or two with you um, and Lisa, I'd love to hear your answer on this. What does Cormendi offer for people who want to do continued work?
2: Certainly. So there's always the option to continue working directly with Dr. Strax, and we also have psychologists and pain coaches on our staff, and so sometimes Dr. Strax will refer to them. We also have a physician assistant. Who works with mind body clients? And she does um, a lot of work with return to movement. And um, we have people working on somatic tracking. And so, very specific skills that you can incorporate into your practice. And so, working with Michelle, the physician assistant, is really an option. And we also uh, just launched a new. Um, a new platform, it's called Cormendi Academy. And we've taken all of the classes and all of the learning that Dr. Strax and our other practitioners have accumulated through the process of helping people. And we're putting it into this platform. And what it is, is live sessions with Dr. Strax every week that talks about different aspects of mind-body healing and walking you through a very uh, specific process of how to approach figure out what's behind the pain and then what to do about it. And then there will be question and answer sessions with Dr. Strax and Dr. Schubiner. There are uh, return to movement classes with Michelle and um, some other things. Um, There's also a chat where people can can talk. And so it's the only physician-led program like this that's live and so we're super excited to roll this out and people can enroll in that as a way to continue working on things um, with guided support from dr strax or they can be working with one of our coaches or practitioners um, as well and so
0: there's there's a number of different options for people to do okay awesome um I'd love to get the link for that too. So we can put the, both of those things in the in the show notes. So, all right. Okay. So now we're moving away a little bit from diagnoses, um, to people who are in the healing journey and how do we do this? We are, we are living a life that is full of emotion and lifey and, um, and the way we approach life is is really important when it comes to TMS and our symptoms. And so I would love to talk about anger. I would talk about relationships and parenting, which are huge subjects, but I think they, I, so I don't have any kids, um, but um, I'd, I'd just love to hear you guys talk about um, what's that, what that is like in your relationship. And I heard an interview or a, a a talk that you two had and I think that opened you up to being the couple who's willing to talk about this so welcome to being vulnerable um so let's just start with Lisa um I'd love to hear your um just a little bit of your history with discovering TMS and if I understand correctly you guys were already married we haven't mentioned that I think everybody knows you guys are married um but um what was it like to discover tms being married and um um the role of let's just say anger in in your story
2: certainly certainly so um the john dr Shax's discovery of mind body um actually was un, um unfurling shall we say while we were still dating and deciding to get married and so Um, I was sort of walking alongside him, but I will say not fully invested in this because I had also been there with him when he went through all the other modalities and, and then he got to this one and I was like, oh, that's great. That's great. Um, that's wonderful. Um, and then he had that epic bike ride that he talks about in his healing story. Mm -hmm. And then he was much better. And so I was like, oh, that's that's really great. That's really great. And so we would have these conversations about him incorporating this into um, into what he was planning to do career wise. And he would come home from um, you know being at med school and talking about you know what you learn in med school, but still this strong desire to to incorporate this. And I used to get horrible migraines, really horrible, not frequently, but bad enough that I would be out of commission for um, days. And so we were living in this funky co-op in Hyde Park neighborhood of Chicago. Um, It was right across the street from University of Chicago, where he was going to med school. And I had somehow gotten on the board of this funky co-op and it was interesting characters and everything. And something happened and it was a meeting or something about the garden, or I, I don't even remember the circumstances, but I could feel a migraine coming on. And I usually had about a half an hour warning. Like I would get the aura and I'd start to like mix up words and I couldn't see out of one eye and my hand would go numb. And so I would know that I had about a half an hour to get to safety. And so I felt it coming on. And Dr. Shacks was like, all right, what are you mad about? I'm like, I'm a good girl. I don't, I don't get mad. Like, um, like anger's not part of my emotional vocabulary. And he's like, no, 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 really, really, what are you mad about? I'm like, okay, hotshot. I'm mad because you didn't hang up your coat today. And so he's like, okay, fine. So take a pen and paper and write that down. And start writing down everything you're mad about. And so I was like, okay, John didn't hang up his coat. And like, I'm really tired of like this or that, or the other thing. And to my surprise, it went on for three pages. Yeah. And at the end of three pages, the aura was gone. My hand was fine. Like I didn't have a migraine. Um, Yeah. It still gets me choked up.
0: I'm curious when you wrote that list, were you writing like, was it like bullet point list or were you writing about how you felt about them?
2: It was just a bullet point. It wasn't like me saying I'm angry. It was just like coat and laundry and, you know, whatever. And, you know, then started getting to a deeper level by about halfway through the second page. It was that, you know, these obnoxious people on the board of our co-op and by the way, this that, and the other thing, but it was really just a bullet point. I wasn't even naming my anger so much as the things I was angry about. Um being able to say I was angry was a later stage in the process. So it was it was a big deal for me to be able to acknowledge the things I was angry about. Yeah. Um, and so I think after that, there was a period of time where, when I would feel a migraine coming on, I'd go in the bedroom and I'd grab my page, paper and pen and start writing things down. And then from there, it was a transition to actually being able to say I was angry out loud. Yeah. Um, and after, um, there was one final incident where I didn't feel like I was in a position to be able to say I was angry and I got a migraine. And I was like, never again, I'm never gonna go through this mm-hmm. again. And after that, I worked hard on being able to say out loud what I was angry about. And I will give lots of props to Dr. Strax for being able to hear that um, because being able to process anger in a relationship is a two-way street. And so um, you asked um, sort of how we do that in a relationship. And what we've learned to do is to say, I need to tell you, I'm really angry about X. And then the automatic response from the other person is, thank you for telling me. Mm-hmm. So trying to separate the emotions of the two people. And so I would say we're not always perfect about it, but that's sort of the formula that we've come up with for me to be able to say, I'm angry about this. And for Dr. Shax to be able to say, thank you for telling me, tell me more. And then trying to do the same thing from him to me.
0: I was going to. Well, I have so many questions. (laughs) um, What was, Dr. Strax, what was that, that change? I mean, here you are dating a good girl that, you know, is really easy and pleasant to be around and is never angry and it's convenient and you get to do and put your jacket wherever you want to put it. And, and now here she is changing. It's actually what, in your situation, you led her there. (laughs) But what, but what was that like for you to have that, that shift in the, in the relationship?
1: I think that um, I'm trying to think back to, to sort of back then it's, you know, we're both committed to being able to have emotional vocabulary, be part of our families and, and I don't know that either of us necessarily grew up in families where there was a healthy expression of emotion. And so it's sort of new to both of us. And I feel like we you know, have tried to encourage that in our own children fairly successfully. And, and so I think it's kind of this ongoing effort to try to figure out how to make emotions be part of our relationship. And so it's one thing to know that on an intellectual level, um, yeah. it's another thing to sort of have them front and center. And as Lisa said, like sometimes we're better at it and sometimes we're not so good at it. But but I think we both have at least that model, that emotions are okay, that emotions are human, that emotions are welcome into the conversation. And so if we can start from there, then I think over time we can work it out when somebody has feelings that that start to show up, start to need to be processed, need to be, talked about. And so I don't know that I think it was a sort of night and day switch where she, you know, was pleasant and now she's angry all the time. It was about us trying to figure out as a couple, how to make each of our emotions safe with the other person.
0: When you say be good at it, is that what you mean? Um, The other person's emotions are safe, being good at remembering and recognizing and internalizing it as Yeah.
1: And so, um, so in, in my family growing up, like there was a lot of emotional contagion. And so one person would have an emotion and then like everybody would have it. I think a lot of people listening have, have experienced that, especially anger, right? One person's angry. And then like, you know, like, why are you so, you know, you respond, like, why are you so angry all the time? And and so we work hard to try to to allow each person to have their feelings and not take it on for them. When it doesn't go pretty well, then it sounds like, you know, I need to tell you I'm angry with you about um, you know, forgetting that we were going out with our friends or or whatever it is. And and then the other person says, Well, you know, I forgot that, but you forgot this. And so, right, and so it's like. Yeah. The anger's out there, and then the one person takes it, and it, then it's a battle for a while. My favorite story about this, and I may have, I may have said this on other podcasts and places, but um, I was coming home from work one night, and I was—I specifically remember, like it, was, it had been a good day. I was listening to music on the way home, listening, walking from the train, listening to my headphones, like totally good mood. I walk in the door, and Lisa and I are fighting within like thirty seconds. Yeah. And and I like walked in the door, we got in a fight, I took the dog, I went out, I walked around the block. And and I had this thought. Like I like I was not angry when I walked in the door. Like I had been having this very, very pleasant day, very pleasant walk. And I was like, well, if it's not my anger, then it must be Lisa's. Mm-hmm. And and so got back and mm-hmm. came in and said, like, sounds like maybe you're angry. You want to tell me about it. And so as long as I could let her have it and not take it on, she could tell me about it. We could do our best to work it through. And then it becomes like a 20-minute you know, discussion or maybe longer, maybe two hours, but not like two days. And, yeah. and so allowing each of us to have that feeling without the other person taking it on works really, really well. And it's hard. and And so we still will in that first example uh i need to tell you i'm mad well if you're mad i'm gonna be madder and and then then it takes longer to work it out
0: is it fair I to think- say go ahead right i think too
2: the thing um that i've discovered about myself is that sort of the initial trigger is like that coat right the initial trigger of what i think i'm mad about isn't always what i'm really mad about yeah. and that's where, when we can take the time to talk about things, I can get to that deeper level. I can get to the bottom of that second page and say, Oh, this is what's really going on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's that strong. Um, it's this-
2: right. Right. And we've learned that, you know. Sometimes it's helpful, like if the conversation's not going well, we we adopt a technique called speaker-listener where we take turns talking. Um, It's a really fantastic technique, and we can send you the resources for it. Um, But in this technique, one person is allowed to say what they need to say, and the other person just has to paraphrase it back without being able to respond, and so you take turns. And that's been really helpful. Um, sometimes we'll take a little time out if the conversation isn't going well, just you know, five minutes, we gotta go breathe, get a cup of tea or something like that, and then come back to the conversation. And so in addition to tr- trying to create space, we've also tried to create strategies for what, what to do when the conversation isn't going as well as it needs to go.
0: Yeah. It, it sounds like you're, you're, instead of reacting, you're like leaning in and listening. Is that fair? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I've never heard the term emotional contagion. That absolutely makes a hundred percent sense. I, I, I like to, that that's helpful because then we can name it and see it and recognize when something like that is happening.
1: Yeah, I talk a lot about that. Um, You know, I have a whole list in my mind of, of reasons that people have pain and symptoms. One is when boundaries are not solid enough and boundaries can take a lot of different forms, including emotional boundaries. And so I talk about that in that category frequently, that that emotions are easy to pass on to other people, take from other people. Um, you know, people, some people don't let other people have emotions and families. And so it, I pay a lot of attention to how emotions spread or don't within family systems.
0: Yeah. Okay. So how emotions don't spread. Okay. So, so we've got, it seems to be the opposite here. So we have emotional contagion, which is just rampant out of control. It's just spreading for no reason. And then we've got repression of emotion where you're not even allowed to feel emotion. Um, And I, and I think Lisa, I think in, I've heard you talk about that, that, that was part of why anger was not something you were in touch with. Is that correct? Because it was not a safe um, emotion to have in childhood. Is that fair?
2: It was, it was not a safe. There was, there was for a long time, there was no modeling of healthy anger in my family. Mm -hmm. And then when the anger exploded, my parents' marriage blew up. And so it just wasn't safe.
0: Yeah. Thank you for your struggling with emotions because it's, it's real, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
2: And I would like to say that I now think of anger as being 100% safe and I don't um Mm -hmm. but I'm a lot farther along excuse me um I'm a lot farther along in understanding that anger can be safe and it can be healthy um and so um but I feel like it's going to be a lifelong process for me too I wish I could magically say that yes I've seen the light anger's you know I'm totally okay with it and not always sometimes yeah but, um, but it's definitely a process just like everything else
0: is, is anger. I don't know. I don't even know where this question is going to go is, <laughs> is anger dangerous, um, for ourselves in the experiencing of it, or is it that the expressing the anger will have consequences from people that you love that's scary or is, is it both?
1: I would say that the expression of anger, I think when, when anger really gets flowing is not in and of itself dangerous. And if you're putting some some resources in, there's a book I really like called The Language of Emotions by Carla McLaren that I think describes this nicely. And, and the idea that like we have feelings, we have emotions because we're human beings. And it's just, it's part of it's part of the experience. And, and so our, our colleague, Nicole Sachs, who many people probably know, um, she says, you know, the emotions are the point. Like that's why we're human beings and so we can get into those feeling states. And so anger, I think is a lot about drawing boundaries. It helps us know when something dangerous is approaching. And so when we feel that anger, usually it's a sign that we need to defend ourselves. In a certain way and and there's so many reasons right so many reasons why anger feels dangerous and people have grown up in families where it is dangerous where it's literally physically dangerous and so people learn that it should be kept aside and it's not okay, but I think when when we feel it and we let it flow, I think it's actually beneficial to us. I think that it's super powerful and anything that's super powerful can have downsides too. And so I grew in a, up in a family where there's a lot of really powerful anger and that was really hurtful in, in a number of situations and and so i also have needed to learn to to hold on to that part of myself that tendency from when i grew up and the culture i grew up in and and so if we lash out with the anger it can definitely be hurtful to the people around us and so Mm -hmm. i think one of the things that lisa and i try and again like we're not perfect at this but is to really speak in, in I feel statements. And and so if she or I says, I need to tell you, I am super angry about this or that, that works so much better than one of us, oftentimes me, saying like, I can't believe you did this, or like "You, you never pay attention to this or whatever it is that anger sounds like when it comes out, but we're not completely owning it. So the more, the more I can own it, the more I can say, like, I'm feeling angry and I want to tell you why it becomes a much easier discussion than if I'm sort of letting the anger show up without really identifying it or, or naming it. So it. It is powerful. It definitely can be hurtful. There's ways to harness it so that it brings us closer. So when we can have these conversations, we can share the emotions and when we hear what the other person's saying, it deepens our relationship. And I think that's the thing about emotions, that we hold them inside. It may be it's safer in some ways, but to really let our relationship grow, the emotions have to be there in the room to feed the relationship.
0: Yeah. Um, what are, what are ways that you have found that are okay? So, so oftentimes anger leads us to create boundaries or to recognize when something is out of, out of line, something's off. Um, and then, and then sometimes we're angry about something that we don't have to confront the person about it. Um, and, and, or we don't need to, or it's not helpful. Um, what have you found Um, are helpful ways of dealing with that, that kind of anger, where it's not about presenting what I'm feeling to the cash register, the person at the cash register or your doctor, I don't know. Um, What what are ways that you have found helpful with that?
2: So I'm definitely a um, write in big letters across my notebook kind of person Mm -hmm. so I've been known to get up at two o'clock in the morning because I can't sleep and I go downstairs and I just start writing like crazy and oftentimes in the morning I'll go back and look at it and I can't even read what I wrote but evidently there was something you know maybe it's not real world words but um it I am a writer at heart and so I I do like that idea of writing. There's something very physical about it. That's really helpful. Um, uh, I'm also a big fan of um, just going for a walk and um, I will talk to person in my head while I'm out walking and burn off some calories and get some exercise and fresh air, but also like process that conversation in my head while I'm doing it. and sort of get to the point where I can say, okay, I can, I can set that aside for now. Yeah.
1: And I I have had a number of experiences where I, I sort of try to embody the anger. And so I'm thinking like all the experience I had, which which of the stories would would be useful to see. So um here's just one example. So I number of years ago I signed up for a Uh, continuing education series online from a group that I really liked and was looking forward to it. And I, um, uh, I went to the conference in the morning online and it was awful. Like it was just terrible. And the speakers were arrogant and there wasn't any information that was useful. And so I called them at halftime to say, um, I, di- I didn't like it. I just wanted my money back. And they talked to me for a few minutes. I said, great, can I have my money back? I'll just turn it off. I'll never bother you again. They're like, no, we don't do that. And so so then I went back to the afternoon. It was just as bad. And and so we were, um, you know, so Lisa came home from from work and we fed the kids dinner and put them to bed. and And so they go to bed and I'm like, it's two more days of this conference. I'm trying to figure out what to do. And, and so I go to the bathroom and it totally burns. And so I come out of the bathroom and said to Lisa, like, I've got a bladder infection. Like I got to go to the ER. And she looks at me and she's like, well, A, men don't get bladder infections. And B, you've never had one before. And C, like you've been talking about this stupid conference. Like, are you mad? I was like, am I, am I mad? Like. I don't, I don't know. So I went down into the basement and I just focused on letting like my whole being be angry and the sensation in my problems was just gone. Like I had turned a physical sensation into an emotion and then the physical sensation was gone. And so it like, there's no, there's not a specific technique. Like I just focus on essentially like letting every cell in my body be angry. And I've had a number of experiences like that, where the physical sensation has become an emotion and then like melts away. It sounds too good to be true. And I've had that multiple times.
0: And you did say you let the pain become angry. Is that what, <laughs> That is what you said.
1: Yeah. I let I let myself become angry, let my whole body become angry, and then and then the the pain, the physical sensation of pain turns into an emotion and then yeah. it's gone.
0: It's amazing. Okay, so time, time is getting. How are we doing or how are you guys doing on time? We do have
1: a bit more time. Yeah. Okay.
0: So let's take this this um human fact that we have anger and we have fear. So for me, fear was my primary, the label that I put on my primary suppressed emotion. Um, so for, for relationships, what are we, I want to go two directions with this. One is for people who are, and I have specific questions from people around this, but for people who are in marriages, who are, are married to somebody who, um, they do not accept. They do not value emotion in this way. They don't see it. Um, what um, What advice do you have for them? Because that is a category of of people. Um, and then also, um, what advice would you give for people who are entering, um, beginning the relationship route again, um, after discovering TMS and and mind body syndrome. And what are, what should they be looking for in somebody when it comes to emotion and their understanding of emotion?
1: I think, so the thing about the first one, so if you're, you're in a relationship or a marriage where the other person doesn't appreciate emotion, I, I think that that can be a hard place to be, right? And sometimes it really does take professional counseling to figure out sort of how to do this together. And the next question is like, well, what if the partner won't go? to professional counseling and Mm -hmm. and about resources. I'm also, I'm a big fan of Dr. David Burns. Some people probably know that about me, who's done a lot of cognitive behavioral work. He's got some lesser known work on relationships. And he has found over time that relationship work actually works better when only one person is working on it. And so when he does couples counseling with his patients, it's one-sided, not both-sided. And he'll say like, you know, we all have 100% responsibility here. And so somebody said, like, well, if you're talking to one partner, what would you say to the other partner and say, they have 100% responsibility as well. And so what he outlines in his book on relationships is that there are five things that he's identified as being useful in communication. And if we do those things, It changes the nature of communication in the couple, and so it doesn't rely on the other person responding in a certain way. And those five things are finding the truth in what other the other person's saying. That's hard. Um, Empathizing with them, so naming their thoughts and their feelings, and so starting to talk in feeling language. Even if somebody doesn't want to do that, oh, it sounds like you're kind of irritated with that. Do I have that right? Or I know how excited you are to go to the racetrack this weekend. And I just you know want to make sure that that happens for you. Um, so the empathy, um, eliciting more of the story. And so spending time hearing what the other person has to say Um, praising the other person. And so, so not criticizing. And this, these are all things that don't come naturally to us because what do we like to do when things aren't going well? Right? We like to criticize, we like to tell people why we're why why we're right. We like to tell people what they should be doing and what's effective is the opposite. And then the fifth habit that's helpful is inserting our own feelings into the conversation too. Like, you know, I know that you're excited to go to the racetrack. I'm actually excited to have a day all by myself. And so if we start to put some of that emotional language, both in terms of of labeling our own and talking about that and helping people start to recognize the emotions that they have, it goes a really long way. Those are hard strategies to learn those are hard techniques mm-hmm. to to internalize because i think a lot of us like to do the opposite but i've mm-hmm. seen really dramatic changes when people are able to incorporate that and it doesn't require the other person necessarily to be involved the the changes that we make then get added and and increased in the relationship
0: awesome okay we'll put that book in the show notes also yes yeah. Yes, um, as to your question about what people should be looking
2: for in a partner, um, you know, Dr. Strax and I spent a lot of time talking about what kind of relationship we had and what kind of relationship we wanted to have mm-hmm. um, when we were dating and thinking about that. And I remember one really pivotal conversation um, where he said, like, I don't know if I can get married, we don't have it all figured out. And I said, Mm -hmm. I think deciding to get married is the starting point and we continue to figure it out from there. And so most of all, I think finding somebody who is willing to grow with me and to encourage me, those were super important qualities that I recognized in him and um, he recognized in me. And so this idea that like, it doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to find the perfect person, but you have to find somebody who's willing to grow with you and to be open and honest in that process. That's beautiful.
1: And and I think that conflict followed by repair actually makes the relationship deeper than if the conflict was never there. Right. Conflict
0: followed by repair. So is it fair to say that that might be something that would be helpful to be looking for as somebody who, um, is, is willing to follow up with the repair? Yeah. For sure, for sure. For
1: sure,
2: Um,
0: I'm, I have three questions from somebody that is in this category and I think we just answered one of them, but I want to look in detail at them. Um, um, so, okay, we're going to take a step back. Her question was, do you have any thoughts on how to explain neuroplastic symptoms to someone you are starting to get to know? So we're, we're taking a little detour here, but, um, but yeah, imagine here you are, you're starting to date somebody, you know, you have TMS, you know, that this, these qualities are something you're looking for. How do you explain that to, to somebody simply?
1: So one one of my patients actually says, when she has this conversation with people, she says, you know, it turns out that there's a lot of non-physical factors that go into physical pain. There's a lot of scientific evidence for that. I have a scientifically based app that explains it nicely. I'm getting you a subscription to it. So one of my patients just lets, you know, that particular one is curable, which we've done a lot of work with. There are a number of other apps out Mm -hmm. there as well. And so she lets the professionals speak for her i think that actually works quite well i think i also will tell people that you know you want to delve in slowly and so you know lisa and i had been together for a long time before this really resonated with her and it wasn't that she hadn't heard me talk about it but you know ideally and i don't even know if it was ideally but you know i bring it up and say like hey this is something that I have found helpful, or you may want to look into, and then just let it, let it sit. It's, it's my responsibility to try to get the information across. It's her responsibility to decide whether she wanted to take it at that point. And so not trying to force it into people who aren't ready for it. And we also think that for a lot of people, it really takes 50 or a hundred or more repetitions of hearing this to really start to get interested and, and internalize it. And so bringing it up slowly, offering it um, delicately, letting people decide when they're ready to hear it and not being offended if we give it to somebody and they say like, I don't want that right now. It doesn't mean that they're not gonna want it over time. It's a really different concept. And some of my patients will say to me every now and then, like, Dr. Shacks, do you realize how different a way of thinking about pain this is than what's out there? mostly. And, and I've been around it for so long that right. I forget sometimes, but, um, but there's lots of opportunities. It doesn't all have to take on the first try for sure, or even the 10th try or more.
2: Awesome. Sure. So patience. And when, yeah. And when I'm trying to talk to people about it, um, oftentimes I'll try to have it be really simple. You know, sometimes our bodies express for us the emotions that we're feeling because we're not sure how to verbalize it. And then I'll tie it to something like, you know, how, when you get nervous, you get butterflies in your tummy. This is similar that, you know, the butterflies in your tummy are a symptom of your nervousness. It's not the nervousness itself. It's just an expression of it. And so sometimes the pain is a symptom of, um, something that's emotionally going on. And so people have the experience of being nervous and having sweaty palms or butterflies in the tummy. And so that makes it just a little bit more relatable.
0: Okay. That's helpful. Um, okay, and then a follow-up with her. So um, she asked the question, and what advice would you have for someone who is still continuing their healing journey still in the midst of recovery. Is it okay? Is it wise to begin? um, Let's broaden this a little bit to more than just relationship, but something big in life, introducing a new challenger or something we know is going to come with big stressors. Is, Is it, is it okay in the middle of your healing journey to do that? Is it wise?
1: I would say so. I mean, I'm a, I I'm a big fan of doing lots of things at once, just on a medical level. And so people who come to my practice frequently, I'll say like, I think we should do this. I think we should do that. And I think we should do the other. And so it, sometimes people will say, well, if I'm not doing one thing at once, how am I going to know what's helpful? And my answer is twofold. One, like if you do a number of things to try to get better and, and then you're better, we can try to sort out which one of it was on the other side. Like it's much better. It's much more comfortable to try to sort that out when you're feeling well than you're not feeling well. The other is that it oftentimes it takes a lot of different strategies in order to move forward. When we just push on one spot, if we're feeling stuck, oftentimes we don't get far enough. And so it it oftentimes will take a lot, a lot of efforts in a number of different directions in order to move us forward, which is is not totally answering the question. So I'll try to answer that too, which is that the point of getting better is to do the things that we want to do, and and especially in something like relationships, right? We don't necessarily have the choice to know like when somebody who we want to date is going to come across our path, and so we want to be ready when that opportunity. Is there. And I've seen a lot of people where the doing is actually what makes them better. So we have this Mm -hmm. idea that we'll feel we'll do these things once we feel better. But for a lot of my patients, they have to do it in order to feel better. And so I'm all for people starting to move in new directions and trying out new things and experimenting, even after they're starting to work on this. I will also say, I say to my patients regularly, like we get confused and think that getting better is a place that we go to, Mm -hmm. but getting better is a process that we go through. And so even people who've just been working on this for a few days or a few weeks, they're already getting better. They've entered into that process. They're listening to you, they're listening to me, they're listening to Lisa. And and they're starting that journey. And so I ask people not to to get confused and think that getting better is up here somewhere because it's really, it's this whole journey that we go through.
0: I just want to repeat what you said. We'll see if I got it right. Getting better is not a place we get to. It's a process we go through.
1: Correct. Yeah,
0: 100%. Okay. Lisa, what are your thoughts? Um. I think that
2: um I think that trying something new is actually a way to put these things into practice in new ways Mm. because we're oftentimes stuck in our old patterns in either old relationships or old work habits or whatever and so there's something to be said for starting something fresh and putting these things into place right away so that we have that or we're practicing that in in that new situation in ways that we can solidify whereas changing our old behaviors in a previous relationship or previous work situation or whatever that is um is, is much harder to do. I recently went on a week-long retreat and it was fantastic. And I did, um, I was able to work on some things that I had been wanting to work on for a long time. And I was like, oh, this is great. You know, I'm going to like, keep this going. I'm going to do this for two hours every day when I get back and I'm going to be, you know, moving in my direction and I get back and I'm still in my same patterns. And so breaking into those those new habits, those new patterns, may be easier actually to to put into place in new situations.
0: Yeah, I love that. That's yeah, that's wise. Okay, let's shift quickly into parenting. Okay, oh, because parenting is super easy. Yeah, just <laughs> well, just one or two questions. <laughs> you know, this should cover it. That's coming from me without kids, so there you go. <laughs> oh, I'm sure we could do many interviews on parenting but um I I'm I don't know about you guys but I definitely did not grow up in a home that knew anything about emotions showing up as a symptom I mean you had a stomach ache well you ate something you know um and so I guess as far as as far as TMS mind body syndrome goes how do you what do you what steps as a parent a loving parent do you take in just showing your kids um, about emotions and physical symptoms?
1: I, I do feel like we've worked hard to label physical symptoms with emotional language, really the whole, all the way through. And so if our kids get stomach aches, if they get headaches, generally our first question is, are there some? is there something you're stressed about? And the second question is, is there something that you're mad about? And, and I would say like 80% of the time we get enough of the story that there's not residual pain after that. And and so, wow. you know, a couple of years ago we were at a family event and one of my, my cousin's kids had a migraine headache and so spent the day sort of lying on the uh, sofa with an ice pack. And I, I watched that and I was like, I've never seen our kids do that. I've never seen pain like really knock them out in that way. And and the questions I just said, is there something stressing you out? Is there something that you're mad about? It works a lot. It doesn't work always, but it's usually gets the conversation started. And then if we need more, we can go through more. And and right, you know, we're trying to be good parents. I don't want to say that to a kid when they have appendicitis and you know, we had an episode where we thought our son had appendicitis and, you know, he couldn't talk. He was crying and we we didn't push on the emotional side. We took him to the pediatrician turned out he was okay, which was great and came home, didn't need surgery. But, but I think really like from very early age, starting those kinds of conversations and, and, you know, early enough that I remember one time, our son lost at Monopoly. He's not a great loser. And uh, he like threw the board all over the place and stomped into his room. And um, And he he came out of his room and he said, I have a headache and like slammed the door and went back to his room and he came out. He must've been like five or six. And, and he came out a second later and he's like, and I am not mad and slammed the door again. And then like 10 minutes later, he's out for another game of Monopoly. That is my favorite.
0: I, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> also, I have I have somehow adapted that that response to losing. And as I as I discovered that anger is a good thing to express, I have been known to toss a few board games um, without <laughs> without hurting anybody and mm-hmm. with a little bit of laughter. But yes, I do get frustrated. So I feel right. your son. <laughs> yes. Right. Right.
2: Yeah. I would say two other things. Um One is that when the kids were really little, um, especially we would go through and try to name for them what they might be feeling. And so a little bit more, um, I wouldn't not say directive necessarily, but a little bit more um, giving them situations that we, had noticed that they might be responding to. And so are you mad about X? Are you sad about Y? And so us being able to name the emotion for them and then being able to connect it with that, what they were feeling in that situation, I think was really helpful. And, you know, our son when he was two or three like he would be really upset about something and and so I would go through this process are you mad about this are you upset about this no 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 and then when I would hit on what it was that he was upset about there would just be this sort of anguished hey like I had finally helped him identify it and then he could then he could sort of calm down because it had been made And so I think it's, you know, so much of parenting is a scaffolding process. You start out by feeding them and then you start helping them pick up the spoon and then helping them get it. And pretty soon they're cutting their own food and feeding themselves and then they're cooking their own food, right? So it's a whole scaffolding. And so helping them be able to make those connections between the emotion and the situation when they're very young I think is really helpful. And then as Dr. Strax said, when they get a little bit older, creating the opportunity for them to, to name it for themselves.
0: Yeah. So that takes emotional awareness on your end to be able to feed it. Sure. So You're your sure. can recognize it too. Um, right. Earlier, Dr. Strax, you mentioned that you have a, I don't know if you said a running list of, of reasons that people have, have pain. Um, this is just reminding me of this idea of asking your kids, like, are these, are they, is it this and that, and the other thing, would you mind sharing just, I don't know, the top four things that you first think of that you're looking for?
1: So, so emotions, which we've been talking about. So emotions that are being held inside and and don't have an outlet. So, so that's a big one. Yeah. Aspects of personality that a lot of people have, have noticed and recognized in the literature. And so things like being perfectionistic, being a people pleaser, okay. um, being highly self-critical to the point that I will frequently say to people, I think you can continue to be mad at yourself and critical of yourself, or you can feel better, but it's hard to do both. And so really dialing down on self-criticism, I think is uh, extraordinarily important. Wow. Uh can- think yeah, yeah yeah catastrophic thinking i think is a big one and so negative and catastrophic thinking and so yeah. figuring out how to not go to these worst case places yeah. in our minds i think that's a big one and then and then i have this whole interpersonal category that we've been talking about relationships and workplace issues and boundaries and mm-hmm. and parenting i think that's a big source of symptoms as well and then what you were talking about about the fear too and so we get in this fear pain cycle where um, where we're worried about the pain and we stress about it and want to know what it is. And then that the fear makes the pain worse. And then the worse the pain gets, the more we worry about it and we're scared of it. And we have to be able to, to break that cycle too. So those are some of the major places that I will look for when when I'm seeing people in my office.
0: Wait, that's, that's helpful. Hopefully it's helpful for people listening too. Okay, well, um, just in wrapping up, um, anything else that's just burning on your hearts about I don't know, relationship parenting, anything else, any nuggets that you feel like would be helpful for people to know is one that?
1: actually that I was thinking about about parenting. We talked about it about it briefly, but you know, one of the things that I think has been helpful for us as parents and for our kids is the work of of Carol Dwack, who wrote the book Mindset. And so so mm-hmm. she talks in her book about fixed mindset and growth mindset and studies that she's done that says that you can make kids less smart by telling them that they're smart. And so you tell them that they're smart and then they stop challenging themselves because they want to look smart all the time and then they don't grow the way that they should. And so you can actually make them go backwards by praising the outcome. And so we've actually really worked hard over the course of our kids' lives to praise the effort and not the outcome and to say you know come home and with a good grade and we'll say like you should be proud like you really worked hard you really studied hard to make that happen and and you know our our son's an athlete and our, our daughter's a, a piano player and mm-hmm. and outcomes are fickle right I mean you can pitch really well and run into a better team and lose and the opposite too and so We've really worked hard to focus on on the process and the effort and 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 the growth over time, and I think that's been helpful for them. I think um, more so than I was at that age, they're able to to handle disappointment in in ways that I don't think I could when I was their age. And I think I think they don't put inordinate amount of pressure on themselves to succeed in ways that i sometimes see say say children who might come into my practice and and i think that's been part of it that that we recognize that outcomes are just outcomes but the important part is the effort that they're putting in to to get there and so i think that's something that that i'm proud of that we've been able to do as a parent and i think has been helpful
0: awesome for them. Lisa, yeah.
2: I think that um, when I think about parenting, the other thing that has been really helpful is, um, I like to call our parenting strategy, love and limits. And so putting putting not boundaries on kids' imagination or creativity or trying to do better, but putting good boundaries around their behavior. This is what's acceptable behavior. This is what's not. Um, And making sure that, you know, they're responsible citizens and they're courteous and things like that. And then trying to open up this whole world of emotions and creativity and learning and loving. And and so expanding the world, but also teaching them what's appropriate in certain situations.
0: Yeah, so... You're teaching your kids that emotions are good and asking them about it. So Mm -hmm. we're saying, are you angry? Mm -hmm. And then we're saying, let's acknowledge, express it, but there's Mm -hmm. limits around behaviorally how you get to express that anger. Right. Uh, Right.
2: I think that, um, and Dr. Shax, you can speak to some of the situations you see, but like, it's not appropriate for you to be hitting me because you're angry. Right. It's appropriate for me, for you to tell me that you're angry. Um, and, you know, I'm fine. Like, let's have a punching pillow or something like that. But but it's not appropriate for you to take it out on me. And so, um, and so making sure that they understand their emotions, express their emotions, but also do so in healthy ways. And that when they are expressing their emotions that they always know that they're loved.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. And and I've seen our daughter, you know, she's come up to me and said, Daddy, I need to tell you that I'm really mad that you didn't really pay attention when I was telling you about my piano recital. And 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 and, and we're pretty good, I think, when our kids say that. I'm like, gosh, I'm sorry I was distracted or I I didn't mean it. I want to hear more. And then I've seen her just say, okay. And like be totally fine after that. And so it's enough to to be able to get the emotion out. And, and I think to have that trust that she can do that and that's okay. And we're not going to get mad at her for, um, for telling us how she feels.
0: We just want to be seen and known, don't we? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So much.
0: Um, so you mentioned something. Do you, do you work with kids often? Doctor
1: I work with kids. Some usually adolescents, I don't do a, a ton of work. We do have a, a on-call pediatrician who does a little bit of work with some of the, the younger children. And, um, but I will see children sort of 13 and up for a variety of, of issues, including these. I've seen some pretty, pretty dramatic turnarounds. Wow. Pretty quickly With some kids.
0: That's, that's- Kids
1: are good. Like if they get it, they can they can move forward really quickly. And, mm-hmm. and one story of a 13-year-old who's her mom explained it to her and she had had like six months of chronic pain and uh, her mom explained it to her and she went up to her room for like 30 minutes with a notebook and a pencil and then came down and said, okay, thanks. Bye. I'm going out to play soccer. And so sometimes like those changes can happen really quickly if they understand it.
0: Love it. All right. Anything else before we close?
1: Nope. Thank you. It's been a all fun right. conversation.
2: This has been a really great conversation. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. I have been looking forward to this and I know that people are just going to uh, grow and, and learn from this. So thank you. Thank you for both of you, just for the work you're doing. I know that we we all thank each other in this community because we know it's just so uh, life changing um, and important for so many people to know about. So yeah, thank you. All right. And with that, I will say goodbye to my watchers. Um, Thanks so much for being here and I will see you next week.